This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 27th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Sarah Mitchell about the influence of sexual trait evolution on malaria transmission. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Our first story today should be welcome news to parents of premature infants. Because they're born early, their brains haven't developed as fully as they could have for processing sounds in the outside world. But a new study of preemies suggests that a little early intervention can turn this deficit around by simulating a more womb-like environment. How did they do that, Dave? Well, what they did is they actually took recordings of the mother's voices, and they had the mothers sing things like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or Read Goodnight Moon. And then they pumped these sounds into the incubators where the premature babies were living. They also actually took recordings of the mom's heartbeats as well and pumped those sounds in too. And it's interesting because the very hospital environment that keeps some preemies alive can actually get in the way of normal auditory cortex development? Yeah, it's right because fetuses start to hear about 24 weeks of gestation and this is when neurons are migrating to and forming connections in the auditory cortex, which is a brain region that processes sound. The problem with preemies is because they're born early, they're largely deprived of a lot of the sensations they're getting in the womb, including a lot of the sound that really seem to be important for building and developing the auditory cortex. There's a lot of sensory deprivation actually in the incubators that they stay in sometimes for several weeks at a time. So they're really being deprived of a lot of these sounds that other babies are getting. All right, so they simulated a womb-like environment and they sang to these babies 
What was the outcome of the study? Well, they found that the babies that had these sounds pumped into their incubators had significantly thicker auditory cortices than those in the control group. And though the researchers can't actually say anything functional about this, what they do say is bigger is usually better. So this is the first real solid indication that these sounds can actually play a really important role in fetal brain development. And are they planning on tracking these kids as they grow up? to see how they do? Exactly. The problem is with a lot of these preemies, when they grow up, they have some of these deficits because they had so much difficulty hearing and processing words very early on. So the question now is, did pumping this music in, pumping the heartbeats in, make a difference? And the researchers want to follow these kids when they're school age to figure out how well they perform compared to some of their peers. And like many such studies, this one was pretty small. Were there other weaknesses to it? Yeah, for one thing, there were only 40 babies in the study, which is a pretty small number. The other thing is that the experimental group, the group that actually got the sounds pumped into their incubators, had about five more girls in it than the control group did. And researchers already know that female preemies tend to do better than males do, especially when language is concerned. So some worry that this imbalance could have potentially skewed the results. Okay. Now, at first glance, our next story sounds like the premise for a bad science fiction movie. Some researchers have proposed that mass extinctions, such as that of the dinosaurs around 65 million years ago, may actually have been precipitated by dark matter. What makes this hypothesis more science and less fiction, Dave? (laughs) It does really sound like a bad movie plot. What scientists know when they look back at Earth's history is that roughly every about 26 to 30 million years, there's a mass extinction on Earth. And they've really struggled to figure out why extinctions would happen on such regular intervals. Dark matter is this mysterious substance that exerts a gravitational pull on other objects. But beyond that, we really don't know a lot about it. Where the correlation comes in is that every 26 to 30 million years or so, about the same time intervals that we see for these mass extinctions, our solar system passes through the plane of the Milky Way. And researchers estimate that in this plane, each square light year contains about one solar mass of dark matter. So there was a thinking that maybe somehow Earth interacting with dark matter at these regular intervals was causing these mass extinctions, or at least that's the hypothesis in this new study. Okay, so would it be actually causing cataclysmic events like the asteroid hitting the Earth as well as long-term geological disruptions that worsen the effects of such a cataclysmic event? Well, right. There's two possible hypotheses, and it's possible they're both true or that neither is true. But one idea is that dark matter may be perturbing the orbits of distant comets, and that's causing them to fall into the inner solar system where they can strike Earth. And we're pretty sure that a comet helped do in the dinosaurs several million years ago. But there's also the idea that dark matter could directly affect Earth. The idea is that these particles of dark matter would be trapped by Earth's gravity. They would fall to Earth's core. And because when they interact with normal matter, they generate a lot of energy that gets transformed into heat. You have this large buildup of heat potentially over the course of millions of years in Earth's core, and that could eventually show itself via things like volcanic eruptions or the ripping apart of continents, both of which have been shown to play a role in mass extinctions. And can they do anything beyond the hypothesizing with this one? This seems like a pretty hard one to test, but experts are intrigued. 
All right. Humans have been trying to design computers that can outsmart us for quite a while now, and it appears that when it comes to classic arcade games, they finally have. Google researchers have just announced a computer learning system based on psychological principles and animal vision that can best humans at these games. How does it work, Dave? Well, the computers are utilizing something called unsupervised learning. Typically, when we try to teach a machine to do something, we let the machine try it, and then as the machine makes mistakes, we intervene and teach the machine how to do it better. But one of the holy grails of artificial intelligence is to get machines to learn on their own, to have them figure out problems without humans being involved. And that's exactly what the researchers were able to accomplish in this study. So what were some of the classic games they tried this on? Well, these games will be familiar to anyone who was a kid or maybe not even a kid. But but around in the 80s, games like Breakout, Video Pinball, Space Invaders. What's interesting about these games is they're not hard games to play, but they're hard games to master. And the question was, could this computer learn how to play these games by itself and get better and better through trial and error. And that's exactly what the researchers saw. The researchers saw that this machine that they had developed, which they called the Deep Q Network, scored about 20 to 30% more points on games like Space Invaders and Pong. And for games like Breakout and Video Pinball, the DQN, as they call it, actually was 10 times better than human beings at these games. And again, this DQN learning without human intervention, it's playing these games, it sort of sees these games like we do. It can actually visualize the pixels on the screen. So it's sort of interacting with these games in a sort of a similar way that we do. And it's learning, you know, what sort of techniques can I apply that are going to get me a higher score, just like people do. And if I do something wrong, I'm going to learn from that mistake and I'm going to get better and better and better. And eventually these machines are getting better at these games than the human players are. And why does Google have an interest in computers like this? <laughs> That's a great question. And one of the applications of a system like this is we are eventually trying to get computers to do very complicated things for us, things like drive cars, even perform surgeries. And we're not anywhere close to that now. A computer that can play Space Invaders, you probably wouldn't want it operating on your appendix. But the idea is, is that if we can create these machines that can learn these fairly complicated tasks on their own, then eventually they could get to the point where they could learn much more vastly complicated tasks, such as surgery or self-driving cars. All right. I'm expecting our robot overlords to arrive any day now. <laughs> <laughs> What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about looking deeply into the universe in 3D. Also a story about how some common ingredients in ice cream and other packaged foods may be linked to inflammatory disease. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a rise in the number of animals being used in research in the United States. Also a story about just what it takes to change public attitudes about science. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, malaria infects hundreds of millions of people every year, and more than half a million die, mostly in Africa. 
Sarah Mitchell discusses the coevolution of sexual traits in mosquitoes that may facilitate the transmission of the parasite that causes malaria. Sexual evolution between males and females is a very well-studied topic, especially in insects. And the classic example of these dynamics, this sexual coevolution between males and females, is Drosophila or the fruit fly. And we know in this system that the male ejaculate contains many proteins and components which really influence the female's physiology in that these proteins can increase egg development in the fruit fly and also switch off receptivity to further mating. And the female has evolved systems in which she responds to these cues from the male. We also know in Aedes mosquitoes, which are the vectors of diseases such as dengue, that males also transfer ejaculate components which can control the female physiology after mating. They increase her egg development and also stop her from mating with other males in the future. Okay, so how did you get the idea to study the evolution of these traits with respect to malaria transmission? Well, actually, the evolution of sexual traits in malaria mosquitoes was not necessarily something that we automatically associated with malaria transmission. It's a topic that hasn't really been studied in detail, but our lab works a lot on reproduction and, and mating in these mosquitoes. And what we found is that some of the traits outlined in our study have profound influence over the ability to transmit malaria. And what was unexpected is that these traits really varied across mosquitoes which transmit malaria. And that's how we found the connection between sexual trait evolution and malaria transmission. And how does mating occur in these mosquitoes? What's unique about the system? So anopheline mosquitoes are the only mosquitoes capable of transmitting the plasmodium parasite, which causes malaria in humans. And their mating system is similar to some insects in some respects, in that males swarm at dusk in the evening, and you have a hundred to thousands of males in these swarms. Females will enter the swarm. They will connect with a male and then they'll leave the swarm to continue mating. During the mating, what is unique to anophelines with respect to other mosquitoes is that the males transfer what is known as a mating plug to the female along with sperm. And this plug contains lots of different compounds. And we know from our work previously that these compounds switch the female's receptivity off to mating. So females, once they've mated, will never mate again. And this is also something unique to mosquitoes. So, for instance, other insects will mate multiply. But what's unique to anopheline mosquitoes compared to, for instance, Aedes or Culex is that the males transfer a mating plug during the mating event. So the plug is quite a complex structure. It's a gelatinous rod that is transferred to the females. It's produced in the male accessory glands. And it contains lots of different proteins, lots of lipids, some of which we've characterized in our laboratory. But it also contains a steroid hormone called 20-hydroxydisone. And this hormone is normally associated with the molting phases of insects. So as insects progress through different larval stages, this hormone is normally associated with that process, ecdysis hence the name ecdysone. And it's actually quite unusual for this hormone to be present in any kind of ejaculate transferred during mating. And this is something that we found which is unique to anopheline mosquitoes. It isn't present in other mosquito species. So what other effects can this hormone have on a female's physiology? 
So we've shown that this hormone affects lots of different cascades in the female. It's a very potent transcriptional regulator. So once it enters the female, it switches on a lot of different genes. And we've shown from previous work that it induces the expression of lipid transporters. And these um, go on to influence egg development. So you have increased egg development in females as a consequence of males transferring this hormone. We also know that this hormone can interfere and have influence over many processes which are associated with blood feeding. So in females' blood feed, they also produce this hormone themselves. And so blood feeding is obviously the time in which the female takes in the malaria parasite. So there seems to be a lot of overlap with the processes that are um, induced by blood feeding, but also induced by male transfer of this hormone during mating. And these processes can influence the female's ability to become infective with the malaria parasite, so her ability to transmit the parasite. And so that's the connection between exisone and the malaria transmission that we've found in our paper. In your study, you did some laboratory experiments to assess mating plugs, and then you did a phylogenetic analysis to trace their evolution across taxa. Are some of these species better able to transmit the disease because of their sexual traits than others? Yes. So our lab focuses on Anopheles gambi predominantly. This project was actually part of a large um, global project in which they were sequencing the genomes of 16 different species of Anopheles. And we were very interested in whether other anopheline species, other malaria vectors, actually produce and transfer the mating plug because we'd shown from our work that the mating plug is so important for inducing lots of post-mating responses in the female, such as increased egg development, refractoriness to further mating. And so our first project was to characterize the mating plug and whether it was present in other anopheline species and then we wanted to also answer the question as to whether these mating plugs contained the steroid hormone 20-hydroxyectisone because we know that actually it's the hormone within the mating plug which is triggering all these physiological processes in the female. And so we characterized this hormone also in the species in which we had plug information from. And what we found was very interesting. The mating plug and 20-hydroxyectisone appear to be derived traits that are specialized in anopheline mosquitoes. So more distantly related species, for instance, the fruit fly Drosophila and Aedes mosquitoes, they don't have this mating plug. They don't have 20-hydroxyectisone. And these two systems co-evolved together over time in the Anopheline species. And even within the Anopheline species, there's huge variation in these traits in both the morphology of the mating plug and also its content of 20E. And this variation is very interesting because we believe and we've shown that variation in these traits can influence the female's ability to act as a good factor for malaria. So for the study, we selected nine species out of the 16 for which we had genome sequences. And we also chose species that were geographically dispersed. So we have from the Americas, we have Anopheles albomanus. And this is a very interesting species as it actually doesn't transfer a mating plug. 
or 20-hydroxyectisone. So it's very different to all the other mosquitoes that we've characterized in the Anopheles. And Anopheles albomanus is also responsible for less malaria transmission when we compare it to species such as Anopheles gambi, Anopheles arabiensis, both African vectors of malaria, and Anopheles stevensi, which is a vector in India and Pakistan. So it has a much less transmission. We also looked at Anopheles finestis, which is another African mosquito species, and it's responsible for a large level of transmission in southern Africa. And then we had a selection of species from Southeast Asia, such as Anopheles sinensis and Anopheles dirus. And we found huge variation across these species, both in the plug morphology and also in the levels of 20E that they transferred. And this was something that was never known before. No one had characterized the mating plug and these male traits in any other Anopheles species before. So this was very interesting new data to us. And we were very excited to characterize these traits globally, as we know how important they are for female physiology and malaria transmission. Absolutely. And you also looked at the evolution of a protein called the MISO protein in females. What does this protein do? So MISO stands for mating-induced stimulator of oogenesis, so egg development. And this protein we've characterized in the lab it's very highly induced after mating in the female. So the expression of this gene increases after the female is mated. And the gene is expressed specifically in the equivalent of the female uterus in the mosquito. And this protein is very interesting because we know that it directly interacts with 20-hydroxyectisone, which is the hormone that the male transfers to the female's uterus during mating. And we know that this protein is responsible for translating the signal of 20E into increased egg development. And this is through a cascade of events involving lipid transporters. And these events, we also know, can influence the female's immunity to the plasmodium parasite. So there's an overlap between reproduction and the plasmodium development in the female. And when we looked at this mesoprotein, which interacts with the hormone, we found some very interesting results which mirrored what we'd seen in the levels of 20-hydroxyectisone that the males were producing. So the MISO gene looked more similar in species which transferred high levels of 20-hydroxyectisone compared to those species which transferred low levels or negligible 20-hydroxyectisone. And when we looked at the phylogeny of these species according to their whole genome, so according to their relatedness, this didn't reflect the phylogeny that we'd produced with MISO. And so what we believe is that MISO is a product of gene duplication, and it's been able to evolve much faster than other genes in the genome, and it's evolved to have a new function, and that function is to translate the 20E signal into increased fitness benefits for the female. And so species which transfer 20E, they have a specific MISO protein which is able to translate the 20E signal into increased egg development. And those species which don't transfer 20E or have very low levels of 20E, their mesoprotein looks different. And we hypothesize that mesoprotein isn't interacting with 20E. It may have another function or it may even be a pseudogene at this point in which it's no longer necessary in the genome. It's not really having a function with 20E. Now, researchers around the world are working very hard to find ways to control the spread of malaria. Does your study have any potential application towards this end? 
So what we've shown in our study is that these sexual traits have huge variation across species which transmit malaria to humans. And we also know that these traits, for instance, 20-hydroxyic disone, influence many different entomological parameters which actually influence the female's ability to transmit malaria. For instance, we know that 20E increases egg development and this has impacts for mosquito densities, which also impacts the ability to transmit malaria. We also know that 20E can influence the immunity of the female towards the malaria parasite. And we know that also mating itself has consequences for longevity and that actually in anophelines, longevity or lifespan is a very, very important parameter for malaria transmission. And so by understanding and studying these traits, we can understand a lot more about the things that influence malaria transmission. But by understanding how they influence malaria transmission, this will open new avenues for malaria control, which is the ultimate goal in which we're working towards. And so if somehow we can interfere with the pathways that 20E or these male traits are inducing, which increase the female's ability to transmit malaria, then we can go against the natural ability of females to transmit malaria and actually stop them from doing so. And so this is something that our lab is very focused on at the moment. We know that 20E is inducing many pathways. We know these pathways are important for transmission. So if we can perhaps inhibit these pathways, we can perhaps inhibit malaria transmission. And we think this is something that is very achievable and is something that we're currently working towards. Well, that sounds very promising. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Sarah. Thank you for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure to talk about our work. Sarah Mitchell and her colleagues write about the influence of sexual trait evolution on malaria transmission in this week's Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.